five miles outside of the little town where we planned to spend that night, we heard tiny mews coming from the weeds up ahead. And then as we got closer, four of the most adorable kittens bounded out to meet us on the trail. They brushed against our boots and nipped at our shoestrings, and I was smitten. I reached down to stroke one after the other, and my friends did the same, laughing at all their kittenish antics and melting with their sweet, small cries. But after a few minutes, the tone of our encounter shifted. One friend asked, where was their mother? And the answer seemed immediately and ominously obvious. And their constant crying suddenly sounded less sweet and more desperate. They were hungry and orphaned and miles from the nearest town, out in the countryside and too young to fend for themselves. What should we do, my friend asked. What can we do? was my response. We're an hour and a half from a town that's not even big enough to have a shelter. When we get there, we'll be staying in a room with 60 bunk beds in a hostel that probably doesn't allow pets in a country where none of us live and only two of us kind of know a little of the language. And we're leaving tomorrow to walk 19 more miles to another town that is just as small. We don't have any food for them. We don't know anyone who can help us. We can't do anything for them. We just have to leave them. And I told myself in that moment, this is just life. Those kittens are going to die, starve to death or be eaten by whatever got their mom. It's cruel and sad, and it hurts to be faced with it, but this is nature. Cute things are eaten every day, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are powerless to prevent it. It's just what it is. That's life. And I told my friends the kind of gentle lie you tell when abandoning four adorable kittens to certain death. Maybe their mother is out hunting. And it let us all walk on, the kittens following us for 20 yards or so until they felt they had strayed too far from home or until they gave up on us saving them and turned back. I didn't realize when I wrote this sermon how deeply I would lose you all in a story of abandoning four kittens right at the beginning. But Stick with me. That feeling of, of powerlessness, of helplessness in the face of suffering, that is a familiar feeling for me. That sense of what can I do? What can I do? I read the headline that the Gulf Stream is closer to collapse than scientists previously believed. What am I supposed to do with this information? Find a spot in the middle of the ocean and just start kind of shoving it in the right direction? What am I supposed to do? Feel bad? Check. All the time. And it's not effective. It doesn't do anything. The ocean currents still aren't fixed. The war in Palestine still isn't fixed. 
nor Ukraine, nor the American political system, nor violence in our own city, nor any of the other intractable problems of which we are all aware. I can't do anything. It's cruel and sad. It hurts to be faced with it, but that's life. In his book, Hunting Magic Eels, which we took the inspiration for this worship theme from, Richard Beck says that modern Western culture isn't so much disenchanted as experiencing a shift in its enchantments. With mainline Christianity and maybe other institutionalized religions having become both less popular and less enchanted, people are turning to other sources like tarot or astrology. They're reclaiming ancient and historic forms of enchantment. And I wonder if it isn't related to that feeling of powerlessness, of helplessness in a society which feels too large and too complex to really get our arms around. A world whose problems are so removed from my daily experience or from the scope of my actions that we're left to watch it come apart from the sidelines of our own lives. I wonder if that feeling isn't part of the resurgence of interest in magic, why every book that my daughter Nola and I read is about kids who can cast spells and make potions and do seemingly impossible things. Are we collectively dreaming of a world in which we have the ability to actually change things? imagining a life in which we can fix the problems we face, longing to believe that there is a source of power that we can tap into that is capable of saving us. Jesus' disciples know that feeling. In all the excitement that happens later with the Swedish fish, I usually fail to notice that when the story starts Jesus and his disciples are just trying to get away from people, from the crowds that have been pressing in on them relentlessly day and night, the crowds that themselves are hungry for this power that they've heard about. They've been suffering or they've been watching their friends and family suffer without relief for years, and now there's this buzz that there's someone who can do something about it. But it's too much for the disciples. The need is too great. So they try to get away, to make a retreat, to go off in the wilderness and take a hike. But it meets them there on the trail. That crowd, that mob of insatiable need whose problems they cannot solve. They cannot possibly get their arms around. But Jesus, the one who doesn't feel powerless, sits them down and starts to give them what they're there for. He teaches them for hours, and no one moves. They take all they can get. And finally, it's late, and no one's eaten, and the disciples tell Jesus it's time for a dinner break. Send these people home for a meal. And he responds, you give them something to eat, which is not possible as they remind him. We're far from the nearest town. We couldn't even get there and back in time. And even if we could, 
Do you know how much money it would cost to feed all of these people? We are poor. We can barely feed ourselves. What can we do? And Jesus tells them, you can gather the food that you have. You can get the people to sit down and get ready for dinner. You can give me those few loaves and those little fish. So they do those few ineffective things, the things that they can do, and something happens, and people are fed, 5,000 of them, with almost nothing. A miracle. Maybe you can hear how the story gets a little hazy right there at the end, right around the and something happens part, the part of the children's message where we have to just say, and... I don't know what this means or what happened, but the people got fed. It gets hazy at that and something happens part, arguably the most important part, the part we're trying to focus on for this theme, the enchantment, the mystery, the magic that that something can happen, the something in our lives that is beyond what we can explain, that is beyond what we have words for, something bigger that we're a part of or that is part of us, the something we may have lost, the miracle of it all. In the book, Beck talks about his own skepticism about that M word, about that idea, the miraculous even as he's arguing for a more enchanted view of life, that there is another dimension to our existence beyond the mundane, he's reluctant to speak about miracles. It feels so unscientific. It feels... I don't know. I wrote pre-modern, but to me it feels like so evangelical. It feels difficult to believe. But when Beck spends time with people who do talk about miracles, he finds them different than he had assumed. He finds that their faith in something bigger and something beyond is not so much a denial of other more rational explanations, but an added dimension. Not so much a shift in what they believe happens as a shift in what they think about what happens. Not a different reality, but a different lens on reality, a lens of receptivity, of possibility, a lens of openness to the impossible thing that they still hope might happen. So that when they face a problem that appears too complex to solve, a situation where others might be tempted to ask, what can I do? They instead ask, what might God do? where I would be tempted to cut things off, to declare that this is what it is. This is life, to leave things as they are because there's simply no hope. These folks stay open to the idea that something might happen. And because they're open to it, sometimes it does. A couple hours after we left the kittens, My friends and I were resting in the town square, and suddenly from down the hill, 
that we had climbed to get into town, we heard mewing. And up the street came these three French guys in their 20s, whom we had seen at the hostel the night before, seemed kind of standoffish, French. <laughs> Weird shot to take, sorry. And in their arms were four adorable kittens that they had carried for the last five miles. They took them to the hostel and convinced the woman at the front desk to let them stay. They found a shopkeeper with a big box and they laid soft things from their backpacks at the bottom. They bought milk and fed them and soon for the first time that day, the kittens quieted down and fell asleep on top of each other right there at the front entrance. And everyone who went in or out all night had to visit them and ooh and ah over them. And I was right. There was no shelter in that town or the next one. But they managed to get in touch with a place that would take them in the next city that we would come to just 40 miles down the trail. So these three young guys committed to carrying four squirming kittens for two more days to get them to safety. And all the problems that I was worried about got solved and all the complexity of the situation came unraveled. Something happened. And what had seemed impossible to me became very possible, a miracle. I don't know that those guys would have said so. I don't know if they were people of faith, if they were like most of the people I met on my pilgrimage, they were atheists out for a good walk. But they were open. They were receptive to the possibility that something might be done. That there was a source of power that they could tap into to solve this problem. Yes, the power of their own feet and their backs, the power of adorable kittens to move otherwise reluctant front, work, front desk workers, but also maybe something else, something extra, something mysterious and good that sometimes does happen. And the point is not that we have to believe in miracles, at least not in some kind of unscientific pre-modern way, and the point is definitely not that we need to feel responsible for all of the seemingly impossible problems that we face. There's already enough of that crushing sense of responsibility. The point is not to feel bad because feeling bad doesn't accomplish much. And the point is that we can accomplish things even seemingly impossible things, or that God can, or both of us. The point is that sometimes we hear a voice saying, you feed them, you carry them, you solve it. The point is that if we are receptive to it, if we do what, whatever it is we can do, sometimes something else happens that we didn't expect, that we can't explain, 
and all the complexities of the situation unravel and the part that we cannot do gets done. We tap into a power that is bigger than us. The point is simply to stay open to the possibility of something more.